So unless this is your first Sunday with us, you should know that for the last five weeks, we've been doing a sermon series about what it means to be a Great Commission church. Uh, The first week, uh, Chet preached on what the Great Commission is. He preached on what it entails, namely that we are to go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, The second week uh, of August, I preached on prayer and its power and necessity in our pursuit of fulfilling the Great Commission. We can't hope to fulfill it without prayer. Then the third week, Caleb preached. Uh, He preached on the work of the Spirit in our gospel ministry uh, so that we need not fear as we seek to fulfill the Great Commission. Uh, As we go out trying to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to people, that can be an intimidating process. But because we know that it's the Spirit who changes hearts and minds for Christ, we need not see it as a fearsome task. We can see it as a joy. And then last week, Chet preached on discipleship and what, what that involves, what making disciples entails. And he showed us that that means just walking with the Lord, our everyday commitment to being faithful and following Christ. This week, I have the privilege and honor of finishing up the series And I'll be preaching on uh, what it means to be a Great Commission church in light of uh, global missions, that we must be committed to them if we're to be a Great Commission church. But before I get into that, I want to remind us as a church, considering we're finishing up the sermon series, on why we did it in the first place. I mean, we spent so much time in Ephesians. We're about to do Proverbs. Why did we take these five weeks to talk about the Great Commission and what it means to be a Great Commission church. It's because Christ's mission for his church is to go and make disciples of all nations. And the purpose of this sermon series is to remind us of that mission. We need the reminder. With all the things going on in our lives, it is so easy for us to get sidetracked. I mean, just think about, in this church, how many people have had babies recently, or how many people have started new jobs, or just entered new stages of their lives recently. We are busy people, and it is so easily to be distracted from Christ's mission for us in light of everything that we have going on. Or just think about some of the suffering that people have gone through in this church, or the how... It seems like for so many of us, circumstances line up perfectly to drive us crazy. It's easy for our mission to fade into the background in light of that. So this sermon series is meant to hopefully stop that from happening. Because make no mistake, that mission is still our responsibilities of the followers of Christ. It's still Christ's final command to us. We must battle against the temptation to turn from it. It is good and right for us to stay the course. In in light of that, it's our hope this month that as we've been preaching through the Great Commission series, that you've been assessing the mission that you've been pursuing in your own life. This sermon series has been a, a way for us to evaluate as a church if we've been united in living for Christ's mission or if we have all been living each our own way according to a mission of our own creation. Are we a church? I was thinking of an analogy yesterday. Are we a church who's like a fleet of ships sailing together towards the same destination that Christ has given us? Or are we a fleet of ships who are just kind of sailing off in all different directions? 
my prayer through the sermon series has been that God would adjust all of our sails and compasses, that he would reawaken us to what Christ's mission for us is so that we would be more of the first fleet and less of the second one. That is what a Great Commission church is after all. And that's why we're preaching this sermon series. So now, as I already said, I'll be finishing up the sermon series with a sermon on the global missions. If we're to be a church committed to the Great Commission, we must be a church committed to global missions. Remember what the Great Commission is. Our mission is to go and make disciples of all nations. We cannot forget that phrase at the end, of all nations. In the Great Commission, Christ calls us to reach all people groups. He calls us to participate in discipleship on a global scale, not just in our own church and not just in our own community. He wants us to reach all peoples. He calls us to participate in discipleship on that scale. And for his mission to be complete, all nations must be reached with the gospel. And we're going to look at that completed mission in the passage that we're looking at today. Turn in your Bibles now to Revelation 5, verses 1 through 10. Now, as I'm about to read this passage, please visualize it. I want you to create a picture of it in your head. In my opinion, this is one of the most incredible scenes in all of Scripture. It is, it's one of my favorite chapters. I was incredibly excited, but also, for that very reason, very intimidated about preaching from this passage I want you to get a glimpse of what John, who's the author of the book of Revelation, saw when he had this vision. So please follow along with me as I read Revelation 5, 1 through 10. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Friends, if there is only one thing I want you to take away from this sermon, I want it to be this. Christ is worthy of nothing less than our full commitment to global missions. Let me say that again. Christ is worthy of nothing less than our full commitment to global missions. He is too glorious, too great, 
and too good to receive any less of a, of a commitment from us, his people. This passage in Revelation is one of the first parts of a vision that God gave John when he was exiled on the island of Patmos in the later years of his life. The whole book of Revelation is the written record of that vision that he had. Though people disagree on how to interpret this vision that John had, there's no confusion over the purpose behind it, why he has given it to us. God intends for this vision to be an encouragement to his people. He wants us to be reminded of what we are working towards, what we are pursuing. He is showing us what the completion of our mission looks like. Christ will be victorious. He wants us to walk by faith knowing that it is absolutely worth it to give our lives for it. Christ died so that we could live, not for ourselves, but for him. And it, is worth it, and it is worth it because Christ is worthy. He is worthy of nothing less than our full devotion. In particular, we see in this passage that Christ is worthy of nothing less than our full commitment to global missions, as I've already said. God showed John, and John shows us Christ's worthiness in this scene. And then we also are shown how his worthiness compels us and motivates us to participate in global missions. So, we are first, therefore, going to look at the story being told here and how it magnifies Christ's worth. We're going to work our way through the first eight verses. Then, we're going to look at how our response towards worthiness should involve us making disciples of all nations and participating in global missions. All of that is to point to the fact that, as I've said, Christ is worthy of nothing less than our full commitment to global missions. With that said, let's turn back to Revelation 5 and look at how the story builds and develops and shows us the incredible, immense glory and worth of Christ. He is worthy like no other to receive our worship. So look with me at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So the scene opens up with God the Father on his throne in heaven. In his right hand, he has a scroll with writing on both sides, and it's sealed with seven seals. So, of course, the natural question that we have is, what is the scroll? Why does it have seven seals on it? What is the meaning of this? Why is he holding it? To answer that, we need to understand apocalyptic writing, which is actually the genre of literature that this book was written in. Apocalyptic literature oftentimes uses recurring themes, images, symbols, things like that to convey certain ideas. John does that very thing in this passage. It's a prophecy, and he's using vivid imagery to convey the truth that he's trying to to give to us. The scroll and the seals are an example of that. The scroll is God's will, it's his plan. It's the plan that he had for creation since the beginning of time. It not only includes all that he has ordained to pass, but even his redemptive plan for us sinners who need redemption. There's no room, and notice that it's written on the front and on the back. There's no room for anything else to be written on it. God's will is predetermined and complete. It will not be added to or changed Yet, it is sealed with seven seals. 
Seven is the number, a lot of times in apocalyptic literature, if you've read Revelation before, you see that number a lot in this book. Seven is the number of completeness. And so the idea here is that the will of God, his plan for creation, is completely sealed. It is not for all to know or to execute. One must be worthy or qualified to do so, to open the seals and to to, to behold the scroll and to fulfill it. God made a covenant with mankind, after all, so only those who uphold that covenant are able to fulfill God's plan, which would be shown through their opening of the seals and scrolls. So, of course, that leads us to the question, who can open it? Who is worthy? Look at verses 2 and 3, though. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scrolls and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. No one is worthy to open the scroll. No one is worthy to open the seven seals. No human, dead or alive, is able to do it. No angel is able to do it. Moses, John the Baptist, Peter, David, the great kings of the earth, no angelic beings, no heavenly or earthly beings at all can open this scroll. None of us have the authority or the power or the holiness to fulfill God's plan. Let that sink in. None of us are worthy of satisfying God's plans. We can't do it. But if you think about it, that shouldn't be a surprise to us. Who perfectly obeys God's commandments? Which one of us is without sin? Both the Old and New Testament tell us that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Which one of us does that perfectly? I don't do that for any given moment, let alone for the, rest, for the entirety of my life. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are unworthy to take up his scroll and to open it and fulfill his plan. We have chosen a different path for ourselves. When all is said and done, when you look back at your life each day, you'll see that you lived for yourself far more often than you have lived for God. You have, you have gotten angry when something didn't work out the way that you wanted it, rather than taking the moment to think about, maybe that's what God intended. Or you've been jealous of something that someone else has had rather than recognizing maybe the Lord intended for that person to have it and for me not. Or maybe you've wanted to punish someone for something that they've done rather than trusting God's judgment. We have, we are, we are stained and dirty. We are sinners. We are impure. And God is not. He is holy He is perfect and righteous. He is perfectly pure. And because of that, we are unworthy to take up his scroll. Only one who has sought in all things to glorify God rather than himself can take the scroll and open it. But notice even that the angels can't do that. Even though the angels are without sin, they can't open it either. They are not powerful enough. Notice how verse 2 mentions the angel being mighty. Did you wonder why it said that it was a mighty angel? Why did John include that kind of descriptive term? 
it shows us that not even the mightiest of the angels are worthy of such a task. No one, um, for no one to fulfill God's will, for one to fulfill God's will, they must have the power of God. Now think about it for a minute. Consider the intricacies of creation. Think about a single cell and how complex it is. All of the, the chemicals, the proteins, everything that's going on in the cell and how it all has to work together perfectly for the cell to function properly. Just one single cell is an amazing creation, let, us, let alone the fact that every organism is composed of billions of cells. Creation is incomprehensively complex. But then also think about its vastness. Think about the vastness of space. Our solar system is larger than we as humans can even begin to fathom, just our solar system. But then think about our sun is one of approximately 300 billion stars just in our galaxy. And then there's approximately 170 billion galaxies in the observable universe. That's just the, the universe that we've been able to see with telescopes. The vastness is just beyond our ability to comprehend. To open the scroll and the seven seals, one must be able to, to have the means to fulfill God's will. That means being able to, at every moment, sustain every single thing in the universe while maintaining its proper order and function, maintaining that complexity. Not even the angels can do that. No being besides God possesses such power and authority. No being is worthy to open the scrolls and to look and look at what John's reaction is to that in verse 4. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Why is John grieving? Why is he weeping so loudly? It's because he knows what that means for mankind. We are sinners. We have destroyed the relationship that we originally had with God. He is too pure and holy, like I said before, to allow sinners, to allow impurity in his presence. Paul tells us that God dwells in unapproachable light because of his holiness. As As God's plan has so far played out in this story, we are his enemies. The redemptive story has not been played out. It has not been fulfilled. The scroll has not been opened. We are not his friends. We are not his loved ones. We are his enemies. We cannot be with him. We are cut off from God. Again, we, have ch- we choose to glorify ourselves rather than God. John knows that if no one is worthy to open the scroll, then none of us have hope for anything but God's wrath and punishment for eternity. Without someone opening that scroll, we face hell because there is no one to enact God's plan for redemption. There's no one to restore our relationship with him, the the relationship that we severed with our sin. We need to no longer be his enemies, but rather be his children, be at peace with him. But no one is worthy to execute that plan. No one is both pure enough and powerful enough to do it. No one has the authority to do it. We are still then left enslaved to our sin and face God's judgment. 
Now, it's easy to hear these words and not think about the implications of that. It's easy to hear these words and to not think that that's a big deal. But this truly is the most horrible, horrifying, hopeless reality that we could ever imagine. God, who is infinitely powerful, has found no one worthy to save us from our faith. We can, no, we can only expect to be cast away from him upon our death and suffer his unending punishment. We have no hope for mercy, no hope for love, no hope for kindness. We are utterly alone facing the wrath of God because we choose sin over righteousness. He has turned his back on us because we have turned ours from him first. And he is completely just and righteous to do it. Do you see, that is what John saw when he saw that no one was worthy to open the scroll. He saw our eternal death and separation from God. This would be the most terrifying story possible if it ended at verse four. If this story ended now, we should all be weeping. But thanks be to God that it continues. Look with me at verses five through eight. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures fell and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Someone is worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the lamb, has been found worthy. And only one person, one being can be all three of those. Only one person can be the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and the lamb. That person is Jesus Christ. Consider what we know of him just from the gospel stories that we have in scripture. We know that he is God incarnate. He took on flesh and became men. So he possesses all of God's power and authority. He was born into the tribe of Judah, and he is a descendant of David. He lived a perfectly sinless life. He never sinned. He sought in all things to glorify God the Father rather than himself. He was pure and without fault in the eyes of the Father. But what did he do? He faced a death that he did not deserve. He was executed. He was crucified, though he did not deserve it. And why did he allow himself to face that fate? He had infinite power to prevent that. He did it for us. He allowed himself to be crucified so that he could suffer the punishment that we deserve for our sins. He took our penalty, the penalty that we deserve, upon himself. And he bore the wrath of God, though he didn't, did nothing to warrant it. God poured his anger out on his own son so that our punishment could be fulfilled. It's the great exchange. We are united with Christ when he was on the cross. For all who trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, he took our sin and we receive his righteousness so that we 
are pure and holy in the eyes of God because of Christ, because we are in him. We are no longer his enemies, but instead we are at peace with him. And not just at peace, we are his adopted children. We are the recipients of his great and unbelievable inheritance. That is what Christ has done for us. Now let's go back to to considering what he is called. So look again at verse five. He's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Lions have always been symbols of strength, symbols of power, of leadership. They're symbols of authority and victory. They're the top of the food chain in, in their ecosystem. Lions are not weak and they're not easily defeated animals. The lion of the tribe of Judah was the descendant of Judah who would one day lead his people to victory. But we, we know, having all of scripture, that it was not just merely a political or military victory. It was a spiritual victory as well. It's a victory over sin. It's a victory over death. The fate that we, we deserve for our sin. The things that separate us from God were defeated by Christ, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has brought us peace and prosperity because to God's people because he has reconciled us to him. Jesus fulfilled that role on the cross when he died for our sins. But he's also called the root of David. Similarly, the root of David also points to authority and royalty of the one who is to open the scrolls and the seals. The root of David is a king. He is of David's kingly lineage. But he's not merely a king. He's the king from who David receives his kingship. He's the source of David's authority. Jesus alone could be the root of David. Think about it. Not only was he a descendant of David, but he existed before David was born. David, uh, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. He existed before, far before David, before even creation. David was the chosen king of God because Jesus would come from him, from him later. Now also look at, at verse six. Jesus is the lamb. Think about what did John the Baptist say when he first saw Jesus? He said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the lamb of God because he was, he was the atoning sacrifice that mankind needed to be free of our sins. Jesus suffered the death we deserved so that we could have the righteousness that he deserves. Just as the Passover lamb was sacrificed by the Israelites so they didn't, they didn't face God's judgment and punishment, Jesus became our sufficient sacrifice for all time. But sin and death did not conquer him. Look at, I, love, I love this. Look at verse 6, how it says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. It's standing as though it has been slain. Why would something be standing as though it has been slain? Something that's slain is dead. It's fallen. It is laying on the ground. It is not standing up. But Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He was resurrected. He defeated death. He was slain, but he was raised three days later. He is standing because he has conquered that. The lamb was killed, but he was raised three days later. Death could not hold him. 
this gets back to why Jesus is the lamb as well. He conquered and was victorious even in his sacrifice. He's the, the one and only lamb-like lion and lion-like lamb. His, in his sacrifice, he defeated sin and ensured our redemption. The plan of God that was to be fulfilled, the scroll that I've been talking about, Christ fulfilled that. That is why he and he alone is worthy to take up the scroll and to open it. And his seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, again, remember, seven is the number of completeness. Completeness. This is a symbol for his total and complete power and authority and knowledge. Again, Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. He possesses all that God is. And for all of this, Christ is worshipped by the living creatures and the elders before the throne. He is unlike any other being. The mightiest and the greatest of the heavenly host bow down before him. God the Father is worthy of our complete and utter worship, and so is Christ his Son. He is right for us to worship and to devote our lives to, because he is worthy to receive us. To, to devote our lives to something or someone else is to live for something lesser and something that is unworthy, that is idolatry. Only the greatest, most glorious thing or person deserves our worship, and that is Christ. He is worthy of our full commitment. But what should our commitment look like? That's where verses 9 and 10 show us that being committed to Christ means being committed to global missions. So look with me at verses 9 and 10. And they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The elders and the living creatures respond to Christ's worthiness as the lamb by singing songs of worship to him. Christ is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. He is worthy to take and execute the will and plan of God because he has already completed it. He came to this earth to to fulfill God's plan of redemption and he succeeded. That is why they are singing. They are extolling Christ as the redeemer. Christ, the one who ransomed sinners for God by sacrificing himself. He purchased us who repent and believe so that we are free of our sin and the debt that we owe God for our sin. We don't make ourselves right before God. Jesus has done that for us and they are singing him praises because of that. But notice who he ransomed and to what end he did so. Verses 9 and 10 say he ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation and made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Now, they are very specific to mention in their song that that the people will come from every tribe and language and people and nation. God's people are not all alike. They are diverse. We are different We come from all different cultures and people groups on the earth. Christ died so that men and women from every people group would come together to make a beautifully diverse kingdom of priests for God. It is shown to be fulfilled here and three other times in Revelation. In Revelation 14, 6, and 7, Revelation 15, 4, and 21, 3. 
This is huge because it means something different than what I know I'm typically prone to think. And I think what we are, we're all typically prone to think. Christ's mission for the apostles and consequently us as his people was not simply to go and make as many disciples as possible. It seems counterintuitive, but his goal was never to simply maximize the number of believers. The Great Commission calls us to go and make disciples of all nations. His intent was and is for us to reach people with the gospel in all people groups of the earth. So men and women from every people group will be among his children. So he sent us to go and to find them. We must go to them so that we will hear that Christ is Lord and that they will trust him for the forgiveness of their sins. We cannot be saved by any other way, after all. So that's not to say that he doesn't want us to preach the gospel to all people so that all people are saved, but he's a very real and conveyed intent to us that he wants to reach specifically people in every people group. Ultimately, we must see that God's will is that his kingdom would be diverse because diversity magnifies the glory of Christ more brilliantly than uniformity does. Christ is worthy of such a kingdom. So God intended that from the beginning to have such a kingdom. But why is diversity better than uniformity? John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, gives four excellent reasons for why diversity magnifies the glory of Christ. I just want to show you guys this book. Um, This is the book that I'm talking about. If you haven't read it, I highly encourage you to read it. It goes into far more detail, um, and it's just far better written than this sermon is. Um, And he goes into a lot of what I'm talking about, but it's an excellent book. I highly recommend it. But in that, he talks about four reasons why diversity in the kingdom of God magnifies the glory of Christ more than uniformity. Okay, so the first one is that there is a beauty and power of praise that comes from unity in diversity that is greater than when it comes from unity alone. Let me restate that. There is a beauty and power of praise that comes from unity in diversity that is greater than that which comes from unity alone. Think about a worship service that is full of everyone who looks and acts the same. They're all the same age, same color, same socioeconomic status, same disposition. Everyone is basically the same. Then think about a worship service that's full of people from all different walks of life. Different, there's people that are young and old from all different races and countries, rich and poor, from all diff, they're all different but united in their worship and praise of the same Christ. That second picture is far more beautiful than the first. It is a breathtaking picture, and it is, yeah, it's just beautiful. That is the kind of worship God intends for us to give Christ for now and for the rest of eternity. Now, the second reason why diversity magnifies the glory of Christ, the fame and the greatest, the fame and greatness and worth of an object of beauty increases in proportion to the diversity of those who recognize its beauty. I'll say it again. The fame and greatness and worth of an object of beauty increases in proportion to the diversity of those who recognize its beauty. So Christ is the object of beauty. Think about the last scenario. You have the two worship services. Not only is 
the diverse one more beautiful in just the praise and the worship setting, but it highlights the beauty and magnificence of Christ more than the first. If so many different people with such drastically different backgrounds and experiences can come together to worship the same Lord, then he must possess a glory that transcends all cultural and racial lines. Without diversity, that reality is not displayed. It's not shown. Christ does possess that glory, though, and so he is worthy of that diversity. So the third reason why diversity magnifies the glory of Christ, the strength and wisdom and love of a leader is magnified in proportion to the diversity of people he can inspire to follow him with joy. So again, the strength and wisdom and love of a leader is magnified in proportion to the diversity of people that he can inspire to follow him with joy. Not only is Christ's beauty and goodness magnified by diversity, but so is his leadership and authority. A leader who can inspire one type of person to follow him, but not another, is not necessarily a great leader. But a leader who can inspire any and all types of people to follow him is supreme. Christ, as the leader and king of his people, who are people from all people groups, is shown to be unmatched in his strength and wisdom and diverse and authority through diversity. And then the fourth reason, by focusing on all the people groups of the world, God undercuts ethnocentric pride and throws all peoples back upon his free grace rather than any distinctive of their own. Again, by focusing on all people groups of the world, God undercuts ethnocentric pride and throws all peoples back upon his free grace rather than any distinctive of their own. We are saved by God's grace and God's grace alone. Praise him for that. We are the ransomed people of God because Christ purchased us. We can do nothing on our own to merit salvation or God's pleasure. Christ is sufficient for us for that. We are still sinners. Even though we are saved, we are still sinners. We cannot, at this point, save ourselves. We have always and will always depend upon Christ for our salvation. No works and no ethnic heritage or earthly status can increase our chances of being saved. We are saved through our faith in Christ. By saving people from all people groups, God puts the grace that we have in Christ on greater display. So Christ's great commission call to us to go and make disciples of all nations is because he um, he does that because his kingdom will be made up of people from all nations. And it will be made up of people from all nations because diversity magnifies his worth. He is infinitely worthy of all glory and praise and worship. And the only reasonable response that we can have as his people, once we've, be, we've beheld what he, who he is and what he has done, is to seek to fulfill that intended mission as he intends for it to be fulfilled. Christ is worthy of nothing less than our full commitment to global missions. Now, Our full commitment to global missions does not mean only commitment to global missions. That's not what I'm saying. We must be fully committed to making disciples wherever we go, wherever we are. We want to see people 
every person ransomed and saved by Christ. We want to see every person to, to repent and believe in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. We want to share the gospel with all people. With that said, though, simply reaching people in our own people group with the gospel is not truly fulfilling God's mission for us. We must participate in discipleship globally to do that. We must participate in making sure that people from every people group have the opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus Christ so that they may respond in repentance and faith. And in that mission, there's still much to be done. According to the Joshua Project, which is a ministry that compiles data for missions, there are of there are 16,710 different people groups in the world. 7,064 of those people groups are unreached. That means roughly 3 billion people in this world have no indigenous community of believing, commu- of believing Christians with adic- adequate numbers and resources to evangelize their own people. So basically that means that there are 3 billion people in this world who are in people groups who depend upon missionaries to bring the gospel to them. They will not hear it from people within their own people groups. If we are to be a Great Commission church, we must participate in reaching those people. So how do we do that? This is where I want to get practical with you guys. There are a number of different ways that we can do that as a church to participate in making disciples of all nations and to serve the work of global missions. The first one is praying. Let's be praying for missionaries around the world and for specific people groups that are unreached. And there are a number of different resources that we can use to do that as individuals and together. Um, This other book I have, Operation World, it's huge. This book is amazing. It is specifically meant for this very purpose, to give you information on all the different people groups of the world and what they need prayer for. And this book has a, even like a prayer calendar at the beginning of it so that you can, you can just work through praying for different people groups each day. So this is the newest edition of this book. There's a couple different editions of it. But I highly recommend this resource. Um, there's an, uh, an app on smartphones called JP Unreached or Joshua Project Unreached that basically takes all the information in there and gives it to you one people group each day to pray for and everything. It's a great app. I use it to pray every morning for different people groups. It's, you can set up a reminder for you so that it reminds you each day to pray for the people group that it has for that day. I mean, it tells you, again, specific ways that you can be praying for those people. So download the app. It's free. There's no excuse not to have it. And pray for international missionaries that you know. We can also reach the nations from here. Eleven. I, I looked up some statistics. 11.6% of Champaign County was actually born in a different country as of 2012. And I, I believe that number has only gone up. Also, we have U of I, which is an incredible place to reach people from all different people groups. 
As of 2013, there were 9,804 international students coming from 115 different countries on U of I's campus, just our campus in Champaign-Urbana. That it, we're actually the number two research institution in the country when it comes to the number of international students. And we're number two only by 36 students. So we're basically number one. Um, we probably are now. Um, so, you guys, we have those people here in our community. We have people from unreached people groups around us here in Champaign-Urbana, in Champaign County. We can reach them. Get to know the people around you um, that are, are from other countries. Work with the, the students and the, the faculty that are in the church the UIUC students and faculty that are here in the church, work with them to reach the campus. Participate in IEI Convo Partners. If, if you haven't heard about this program, it's incredible. It, it's actually set up so that you are paired with an international student just to talk with them about things. That's the point of the program, is just to partner you with someone just to talk with them. That is an amazing opportunity to share your faith with them, to show them what Christianity is, who Christ is. Um, I've, I've done IEI for the last couple semesters, and it's amazing. Um, I will email, I'll put um, a link to where you can sign up to be an IEI Convo partner for this fall. I'll put a link on the, the Redeemer Facebook page so that you can sign up. But it's an incredible opportunity, and it only requires one hour a week for you to do it. So pray, reach the people around you. There's, there's tons of them. Give also, support international missionaries that you know that are being sent by different churches or missionary, missions organizations. Ask others if they know international missionaries that are still trying to raise support to go. But you can even just, you're supporting global missions just by giving to this church. If you're not sure, because we are a Southern Baptist church, we're part of the the SBC, we participate in something called the Cooperative Program, which is a pooling of financial resources through all Southern Baptist churches so that we can fund international, global missions together. We are far more effective doing that together than individually as churches. Um, The International Mission Board, which is the part of the SBC that specifically sends missionaries, um, its budget is nearly $300 million. And a vast majority of that comes from the cooperative program, which we give to every time we give offerings. 7% of our offering each week goes to the cooperative program. So you're giving to global missions every time you give to this church. The, the IMB has 4,842 missionaries out in the field right now because of the financial support that we're able to give. So continue to give. Challenge yourself to give more, knowing that that is going to the Great Commission. And then, finally, go. Consider going yourself. You could go short-term or long-term. 
Let's, as a church, put together a short-term mission trip, maybe something that we can do for a week or two in the summer somewhere. We've done that to England before. People from the church have gone to India. Let's do more of that. Let's come together as a church and plan that. Or you can even check out the IMB. If you go to their website, since if you're a member of the Southern Baptist Convention, so if you're a, part of, a member of this church for two years, you're eligible to become an IMB missionary. They have missionaries that go for just two or three years, and then they have long-term missionaries. And then you can go fully funded through the IMB. Maybe the Lord is calling you to go. If you, if you see that you are able and willing, go to the different people groups of the world. Help plant churches there. Help bring the gospel to those who have never heard of Christ before. Ultimately, be encouraged that Christ is doing an amazing work. He is fulfilling his mission, and we get to be a part of that mission. Evangelical Christianity is actually the fastest-growing religion in the world, and most evangelical Christians, most of that growth is actually happening in the global south. I I was looking up statistics on Joshua Project. Um, There are three times more evangelical Christians in the global south, so that's Asia, Africa, and South America, than there are in the global north, which is North America, Europe, and Australia. And 90% of unreached people groups are in the global south. And so Christianity is growing. It's going to those parts of the world where it's needed. Christ is completing his mission through his people, and we get to be a part of that. So let's do that. Christ is worthy of nothing less than our full commitment to global missions. As a church of people who know what Christ went through for our sake so that we could be reconciled to God, we should, be, we should see his incomparable worth. He deserves nothing less than the worship of people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And we get the honor and privilege to make that happen. He uses us, uses us as his instruments in that. Let's be joyfully and wholeheartedly committed to making sure that that happens so that we can be among a beautifully diverse kingdom of people who will cry out together in all languages to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, We thank you for Christ. We thank you that you have opened our eyes, that you have given us your word to show us Christ's worth, his surpassing magnificence, his surpassing power and purity and holiness. His glory is beyond comprehension. Father, thank you for showing us that and thank you that you have given us a mission so that we can be part of the people and so that we can help bring about your kingdom so that Christ will receive the praise and honor and worship that he deserves from all people groups. Father, thank you for that. And I pray that you would use us as a body and as a church towards that end, that we would be fully committed to making disciples, and going to all nations. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.